This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters. I'm your host, Kara Ong Whaley. In this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Samula Nuristani. He is a research associate in the Gandhi Center's Justice and Nonviolence Program, and he is going to be delivering the Beitzel Lecture on March 3rd at 4 p.m. in Wilson Auditorium at JMU. His lecture will also be streamed online. He's going to be discussing the fall of Kabul. Before we have our discussion with Dr. Nuristani, we have with us Dr. Taimi Castle, who is Interim Director at the Gandhi Center for Nonviolence here at JMU. Welcome, Taimi. Thanks for having me, Dr. Whaley. So I'm a professor in the Department of Justice Studies and also, um, as Dr. Whaley said, Interim Director of the Gandhi Center. So to introduce the Gandhi Center, the Mahatma Gandhi Center for Global Nonviolence at JMU promotes the insights and practices of being the change you want to see in the world by functioning as a local and global hub for learning, research, and practice, and in advancing the understanding of justice and nonviolence through both individual and collaborative endeavors. So that's kind of what we do. Um, We are guided by three overarching values, so I'll introduce those. Um, The first is respect for life and its myriad forms. We are also guided by the value of reconciliation for those in struggle. And then also we're guided by the idea of restoration. So this value is about having social and spiritual health um, among diverse communities. So the Gandhi Center is housed in the College of Arts and Letters, Cal, and also the Department of Justice Studies. And our core mission is to promote justice and nonviolence through education, scholarship, and engagement. So this, this event specifically inaugurates the Beitzel Lecture Series. And this is going to bring distinguished scholars and practitioners of justice and nonviolence to JMU's campus. Uh, We will have public lectures, but we also hope to have seminars, panel discussions, and a variety of other uh, related interactions with faculty, students, and the larger JMU and also Harrisonburg community. So the lecture series is named in honor of Dr. Terry Dean Beitzel, professor, scholar, collaborator, co-conspirator, student, friend, son, brother, husband, and father. Terry was professor in the Justice Studies Department since 2007, and he was also the director of the Gandhi Center uh, beginning in 2014 until his passing in 2021. So Terry, along with Howard Carrier in the libraries, uh, was one of the founders of the International Journal on Responsibility, which is also in our, housed in our Justice and Nonviolence Research Lab in the Gandhi Center. So we are sort of expanding on Terry's scholarship, and he, um, there were a couple of different areas uh, where his scholarship rested among the, the sort of the transitions from violent conflict. So Terry explored the transitions from violent conflict, and he also um, completed uh, a couple of studies in other countries as well. Contemporary and novel approaches to furthering justice. And he also examined the role of nonviolence, responsibility, and civic engagement in the lives of individuals and societies. We miss Terry, uh, but we celebrate his life and honor his legacy with this event. Thank you so much, Taimi. We're delighted to have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Nuristani and look forward to his lecture. And thank you so much for all you're doing to 
honor Dr. Beitzel's legacy. Sammy, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. You grew up in Pakistan and then returned to Kabul in 2001 um, after the Taliban was overthrown um, by the United States in the wake of uh, the September 11th, 2001 attacks um, on the United States. I wonder if you can describe your journey and what prompted you to pursue the Fulbright Scholarship. Uh, thank you, Kara, and all the people involved in this podcast. I appreciate this opportunity. So I guess I'll go a little bit back, not just 2001. So I kind of grew up, uh, mostly my childhood I spent in Pakistan. So growing up as an Afghan refugee in Pakistan was really challenging. So obviously, uh, some of you may know the Cold War 1980s and the 1990s. This was a time, you know, U.S. and the former Soviet USSR, they were pretty much uh, locked in the Cold War. And that was impacting the geopolitical situation in that part of the world, South Asia or Central Asia, or Af which is Afghanistan and Pakistan at the time. So during this time, what was happening uh, in Pakistan, that pretty much impacted what is happening right now. So Pakistan was going down this uh, route of fundamentalism. Uh, the dictator at the time, General Ziaul Haq, he was using Islam as a tool basically to uh, establish the identity of Pakistan, also to advance his uh, geopolitical objectives in Afghanistan. One of the things they did was they pretty much shaped the future of that country as well as the Afghan refugees. So they use Islam pretty much as an overt tool for everything that was gonna impact all the Afghan refugees. In the United States, uh, which was at the time intent on basically hurting Russia or the Soviet USSR at the time by whatever means they could and they did not pay much attention to the fundamentalism that was brewing at the time. So the United States pretty much gave them all the weapons, advanced weapons at the time, and billions of dollars. And Pakistan was given an open hand in terms of how they would distribute amongst the Afghan Mujahideen or the freedom fighters they were called at the time. And now, you know, in hindsight, I guess it's easier to look back and say that was wrong. In the hindsight, we can see where the fundamentalism started. And that was also aided by the you know, Arab states, particularly Saudi Arabia, and they were throwing billions of dollars uh, to, to Pakistan. In addition to that, they were funding lots of madrasas in Pakistan. So for the Afghan refugees, the goal of that project was for the Arab states was to one was to basically propagate and export their version of the Sunni Islam, particularly the Wahhabi and Salafi version of Islam, and to counteract the Shiite version of Islam that Iran was, you know, propagating in the region at the time too. The, so they were spending billions of dollars in what happened to the Afghan refugees' children, my generation, we didn't have the opportunity to go to school, you know, regular schools. They 
all the whatever option or the only option for us available was basically go to madrasas. It was free. Uh, you didn't have to pay anything. Uh, food was there, room and board, everything was free. And these were going to be the future foot soldiers for the Mujahideen and eventually the Taliban. And we saw that in the uh, mid 90s and late 90s and even after 2001. The bulk of the you know fighters of the Taliban, they pretty much graduated from these madrasas in different time frame though. Mm. So for me growing up, it was a really challenge. I always I and the people I associated, we longed for the time that we could actually go to school and actually learn about science, learn about maths, not just religious texts. Uh, I think as a religious country, it was important to be educated in those subjects, but it wasn't sufficient. We had to go beyond. So you, you needed doctors, you needed engineers, you, you, you needed bureaucrats, you needed politicians to rebuild the country once Afghanistan was liberated from the Soviet invasion. And unfortunately, uh, the bulk of the focus was on religious indoctrination. And the outcome was when I, once the Russians left Afghanistan, it was a political vacuum. Mm. There was nothing to kind of replace the regime that was before. And now all you had were these uh, semi-literate or mostly illiterate people there in power. And the most important thing, they were kind of alienated or separated from their Afghan identity by design by virtue of them being taught in Pakistani madrasas. Mm. And they were taught in Urdu. They were really taught Afghan history. They were really taught, uh, uh, you know, about Afghanistan, the ethnic composition of Afghanistan, and what cultures were, you know, uh, organic to the Afghan people. They pretty much grew up Afghans without having those essential ingredients that make them or us Afghans at the time. So when they returned to Afghanistan, they were pretty much uh, transformed or degraded into this uh, proxy force. They bedded for the Pakistani interests. And we saw that throughout the 90s in 2001. In Pakistan, uh, the term they use is, you know, strategic inferiority complex. It was suffering from that because they saw, okay, if India becomes too powerful, and Pakistan land-wise wasn't sufficient enough to confront that or contract. So they needed a strategic depth. And to do that, they needed Afghanistan, a friendly regime in Afghanistan that would serve their interests. And it has been doing ever since I remember. And that is one of the main elements that is impeding progress on, on Afghanistan. And it's mostly the Pakistani interest in the Afghan politicians somehow tend to ignore that. And I think to some degree, Pakistan has a legitimate, you know, concern, but it is not to the point that they would justify pretty much invading Afghanistan, which is just happening right now, uh, especially in August 15, 2021. So there's, there's concern is legitimate, but it never justifies the invasion or using a proxy force to pretty much destroy Afghanistan and, and wage a campaign of terror. So going back to that childhood in Pakistan, I always longed for that time that I would, you know, go to school in my homeland 
and you know see the national flag uh, hear the national anthem and my generation pretty much longed for that and with the removal of taliban it, it just it was a dream and nobody could anticipate and all of a sudden we wake up i think late 2001 the taliban are fleeing left and right and they are pretty much running out of hiding places and that just it was an exhilarating experience and you could probably watch some footage from early 2000 or 1 or 2002 people were coming out to the streets and pretty much welcoming the uh US forces for what they did so going back to afghanistan uh for the first time to kabul actually Uh, my goal was basically to take the entrance exam to the uh, the Kabul University which was the only university at the time that was still functioning so it was really liberating and and exhilarating i still remember those days and it just felt uh despite the you know infrastructure and the destruction that i saw during the 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 trip from Pakistani border to the capital even though it felt like more like watching a scene from the apocalyptic movie but i never felt i just felt you know at home uh, yeah there was no electricity there was no running water the roads were shattered uh, so the the distance from the Pakistani border to the afghan capital it's about 144 miles and because the infrastructure was so poor it took us a whole day so it shouldn't take more than 2 hours now it takes like 3 hours so i guess that that desire that dream uh was always there for me and with the us uh you know engagement in afghanistan people it was just like a booster shot of optimism and and, and hopefulness for the afghan people it just gave us the opportunity for the first time in my life i remember to dream and dream big and i think we did dream big and the kabul university uh combined with the us embassy that was operating at the time certainly paved the way for me to realize that dream i always uh had dream about studying in the united states I guess some you know cultural influences the movies do have some uh influence but I was mostly uh, yeah the 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 high tech gadgets and all those things are attractive but to me the most attractive form of all was the soft power specifically the education that the US universities offer to people around the world that was the most appealing to me so I always dreamed about that and Fulbright was somehow it was Only by uh, accident, I think I was somehow just, I think, walking in some part of the Kabul uh, city and I saw a poster, you know, Fulbright. It was in English and there was some, uh, you know, translation as well. So, and I had heard so many, you know, you know, there were so many scams at the time going on. And also the corruption was taking rules at the time. It was like... I'm not going to get that opportunity because one I belong to an ethnic minority I will never actually have the opportunity to be invited to interview second I thought this could be just a scam mm-hmm. so I didn't pay much attention to that 
But one day uh, in the Kabul University Library, some I think I was there. I had gone there to pick up a book or something. And I see there's a, a representative from the U.S. Embassy. He's uh, sur surrounded by so many students. And he's, you, you could tell he was a white person and tall. You could, he, he, was, he, he stood out. And so I got closer and I listened to what he was saying. And he was like, he was really vocal. And he's like, please, I encourage you to actually apply for this. And I think he knew what, what prevented a lot of people from applying and he knew what was going on. He's like, if you have the competence and you, if you meet the qualification, I strongly recommend you because this is not going to be dealt or, or managed, administered through whatever you have heard about it. There's not, there's not going to be nepotism. There's not going to be connection. If you have, if you meet whatever criteria, you will get the opportunity. And their criteria at the time was, I think, TOEFL and statement of interest. And at the time, it was. Uh, it was not an easy task to pass a TOEFL because literally there was no book that I could read to prepare for TOEFL. I had to go to Pakistan, which I couldn't go at the time because I was attending university. That was the only route to actually have a book. It was 2003. And as I said, it was like the, the bookstores were in there. All the bookstores, they would provide, you know, books in local languages and TOEFL was as alien concept as Fulbright was at the time to a lot of Afghans. So I didn't have the opportunity, but I studied with whatever resources I had available at the time. And I spent most of my time on the statement of purpose. So I was like, this one, I can prepare for it. And the TOEFL, I had no idea. And the internet wasn't, I think it wasn't that widely available in Afghanistan. I don't know. I didn't know at the time, like, what is it? The TES, what is it? What is that? The ex TOEFL is administered by the agency that also provides some, you know, materials online. Now it does. I don't know if it did at the time. So anyway, in that moment, the, the U.S. representative came to the library and he, I could sense from his, you know, the tone he used, like he is genuine and he is being honest. So I, I applied and I think it took like a year. We did the TOEFL first. No, we did the statement of interest first. That actually got you to the TOEFL stage. And we did the TOEFL, which was paper-based at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think they had to send to the US for grading. And it was, uh, it took several months to get the result. So I think I, I barely made to the cutoff. So I was like, okay, at least that's good. <laughs> so eventually in 2006, uh, May of 2006, uh, I landed in uh, Columbus, Ohio for the first time, mm -hmm. which was amazing. It was summer and I, I, I can't forget our trip from the airport to Athens, Ohio. That was uh, an, a pre-academic program that was designed to kind of acclimate Afghan students with the U.S. Uh, cultural environment as well as the academic environment, which I thought at the time was excellent program. So I remember our trip from the airport. It was the, the Ohio is really green, at, the, at least that part of uh, Athens. Mm -hmm. 
and it was all green lush trees everything everything that afghanistan was in at the time so we really enjoyed the trip in uh, the athens two months at ohio university that was an excellent program so it exposed us uh, at least it gave gave us some of the tools that we needed to succeed at jmu eventually <laughs> so fall of 2006 that's when i came to jmu as an undergrad so yeah the basically the the removal of taliban uh, was a booster shot of optimism for millions of afghans and somehow the return of taliban in august of 2021 it basically deflated the afghan people uh, optimism has practically died cynicism and desperation and destitute has taken over uh, the Afghan people. So, yeah, that was a great but short-lived 20 years experimentation with democracy. Unfortunately, uh, it wasn't long enough for people or in the new generation to actually, you know, sustain that experience. It was a wonderful experience. We saw a whole new generation, especially women, go to school, go to universities, uh, pursue careers uh, in so many different fields that seem impossible. You worked as head of policy and planning in the office of the chief of staff to the president of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan in 2021. Can you share your experience in that role? Uh, thank you for the question. <laughs> uh, so. March of 2020, uh, I went back to Afghanistan for the second round of data collection for my dissertation. So, in I, while I was uh, finishing up and polishing the data and then cleaning up the data and then doing the analysis, I had done the quantitative analysis here, but the qualitative portion, I thought it was best to deal with in the field where I had collected the data from. So during this stage, a lot of people, they just, uh, you know, obviously it's it's a very, you know, collectivist society. You, you tend to uh, be with a lot of people, see people, meet people, even if you don't like, you know, if you're not overly extrovert, you still, the system is such that forces you to be around people, even though I wanted to spend more time on the dissertation, but it, some of the things are uh, unavoidable. So during conversation with a lot of people, most people, they're like, well, you have to remain in Afghanistan. Well, you, you should remain in Afghanistan and, and serve the Afghan people by joining the Afghan government. And somehow, because the private sector is so poor in Afghanistan, in probably a lot of uh, developing countries, the public sector is a route to go to if you are uh, trying to, you know, uh, somehow influence policies or make a, a difference in people's lives because public sector is the only entity that is possible if there is political will to actually implement changes. In private sector, it's so weak. And, and that was their uh, rationale behind, you know, uh, just encouraging me to join the Afghan government. I, I had at some point wanted to work for the Afghan government. That's why I went in when I finished my undergrad in 2009, went to work for the Afghan government. Uh, 
but corruption, I guess, is going to be the theme throughout the discussion. <laughs> that really uh, shook uh, my confidence in working for the Afghan government. One, you had to have strong connections. You had you had you had to belong to either the two uh, to one of the two major or dominant ethnic groups. You had to belong to certain political groups or inner circles. Uh, and at the time, I, I I didn't belong to any of those. I didn't have any of those. I thought just you know having the qualification should be uh, the, the 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 what you need, but. I guess I was naive at the time, which wasn't sufficient. You need more than that. That's just the essential, the basic, the minimum, basic minimum you have to have beyond it. So going back to 2001, 2020, uh, the argument, the more I spent time there, it became more appealing to me. One, because it allowed me to spend time with my family, which I had been for most of my life away from especially my dad and my siblings. And when I was in the capital, my dad came up and we lived together. So that was really a great experience. And, it, and my wife, and, and it gave me, the, it, it became more compelling and more appealing over time. So uh, I kind of considered, and somehow when I completed my dissertation and defended it, uh, an opportunity unexpected, unexpectedly uh, came up, uh, which basically took me to the to work inside the presidential palace uh, for the uh, in the office of the chief of staff to the president at the time. So probably that was my the best job I ever had and the most challenging because it was uh, stressful, uh, long hours. Uh, and I, I felt like I could make a difference. That was the main uh, essential ingredient that gave me satisfaction. Uh, it was a fearful uh, time during. So what happened since 2019, when the Trump administration got into covert negotiation with the Taliban, they had become emboldened and they had been, been given a legitimacy. So what they did, they started a campaign of terror and targeted assassination inside the city. So when I was there, every day there was a public servant being assassinated. And, and it didn't matter what position they were in. A, a clerk, as long as they were he or she worked for the government, they were, they were on the target. So it was a campaign of terror and it was really terrifying at the time. Still, I, I considered working for, for the Afghan government, it was worth it at the time, even though there was com there was basically a huge possibility and probability of being killed. Because I saw so many people, like the, the bus stop or the taxi stand I used, there are people being, you know, murdered right there, like a few streets down where I lived. The area I lived, it was hot. Uh, Taliban influence area. So I eventually I did move from that area and the location I chose, not many people knew where I worked first. I didn't tell anybody where I worked, which was security issue. And I guess that played a part in me being secure. Second, I didn't take any government vehicle. I just used taxis and kept as low profile as was as possible. 
and just use you know local custom customary uh, garment or, or dress that was there so that helped me anyway that was just a side note that what it allowed me to actually see was to assess the inner workings uh, in the inner circle of the president Ghani uh, while working there I came to actually verify that the Afghan government was pretty much run by a three-man team unfortunately and the rest were pretty much rendered uh, powerless you had the cabinet you had the security sector leaders you had the military leaders you had the bureaucrats but they were simply powerless vis-a-vis -vis the, the three people so the president national security advisor and there's one more person they call it the office of the administrative affairs of the uh, president and the head of that agency and all the leaders important positions were filled by these three people. Pretty much the president was kept in the dark. President was out of touch with reality. And most importantly, what I noticed, uh, I saw the president as myopic and he lacked uh, crafting a vision uh, for Afghanistan around which he could mobilize uh, the Afghan people to realize that vision. And I think the nationhood, uh, I do uh, talk a little bit about that in my dissertation. It has been a topic uh, ever since Afghanistan. It had been an issue for the uh, peoples of Afghanistan. And I use a plural because Afghanistan is a very diverse society, despite it being geographically in population wise small it's very diverse you have over 18 different ethnic groups uh, over 20 different languages so since its formation in 1747 afghanistan lacked the concept of nationhood mm -hmm. usually each nation has some concept around which people gather and they cling on to that in order to you know basically uh, live together and, and pursue a shared objective. But the Council of Nationhood had been eluding the Afghan people for, for ever since it was formed in 1747. And the Afghan leaders somehow ignored that essential element of nationhood, that vision that brings people together. And uh, President Ghani, uh, I think he's an excellent uh, scholar and he worked for the World Bank. He, I think he, he taught uh, some really uh, high level, you know, uh, extremely important universities. And the roles he had uh, occupied over his career, he was the Minister of Finance, he was Chancellor of Kabul University. When I was there, I remember him. And what he lacked, despite all these credentials, he had all the elements to be that leader, to uh, craft that vision for the Afghan people and mobilize the Afghan people around that vision. He somehow uh, was unable to. And I think it comes down to the fact that for him, the most essential identity was his ethnic Id identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and he could not transcend that limitation mm. he could not he could not go beyond that 
uh, ethnic identity to which he so vigorously attaches. And that is basically what led to the downfall of his regime. And if he had enough people, he had all the resources. He had so many years. He had served pretty much in Afghanistan since the formation of the post-Taliban democratic regime in Afghanistan in different roles, uh, albeit. He had all those experience. He could have used that to unite the Afghan people, but somehow he didn't or wasn't able to. And I guess that's what me working inside the presidential palace that gave me that close proximity, even though I, didn't, I never met him, I did see him in the lawn. And whenever he would walk around in the presidential palace, it was, you had to be inside your office. And one day I somehow, I was walking already there and the security guy, he knew me. He he just like, well, you, you just stay there. You don't have to run. <laughs> so that's, that's the first time I saw him from close proximity. And you don't have to be that out of touch from the public. And he, he could have easily shook hands with the people that worked for him. And a lot of people worshipped him. I mean, he was labeled as the uh, brilliant thinker of the 20th, 21st century. And uh, he, he was labeled as this uh, brilliant scholar. And people worship him for that. And somehow he distanced from the people. He didn't have that courage to, to frame himself as part of that society. Even though he was part of the society, he always felt excluded from it, or he self-excluded. Uh, he could have easily shook hands with people around him, but he never dared that. Uh, I don't know the logic or his justification. Uh, but that disconnect grew over time. And I think that him walking around in the lawn, that just epitomized that disconnect between the leaders uh, in the general public. How do you characterize the current governance challenges and the threats facing the public administration in Afghanistan? I guess when I read the question, I kind of took it as the challenges when I was working there so the challenge, I guess there are so many challenges. Uh, the one I could focus would be, uh, it, it brings, it comes down to two major challenges. One, you had uh, this, so, you know, the, the quality of governance is basically is going to be dependent or proportionate to the quality of the competence of the people who bring to the table, the people occupying important positions, the people in the legislature, people in the judiciary, people in the executive branch. So combine their, uh, the, their qualification should, should impact the governance. Uh, so a lot of the people that filled these seats were somehow, uh, a lot of them were incompetent. And it wasn't because there was a shortage of competent people, certainly not, there were plenty of people I knew certainly and I knew from different ethnic groups, they were so qualified to fill those positions. But somehow this, the equation they use to, to hire these people, the, the ingredient of qualification never entered into that equation. It was always other factors than qualification. You had to belong to certain ethnic groups, you had to have certain contacts, you had to have certain connections, you had to eat, 
even within ethnicity, he had to belong to certain tribe. So even within Pashtuns, I'm not saying so, you had to belong to a certain sub-tribe within that group to actually, you know, basically fill those position. So once you allow these so many, uh, you know, unrelated variables to enter into equation, the outcome is not going to be good. And that's practically what we saw in Afghanistan. So many incompetent people running important positions. And we saw throughout uh, a brain surgeon. I, I was, when I was in, 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 in my last role, I, one day I was just like, let me just look at the you know, profiles of these people that are occupying important position. So this administrative uh, bureaucracy, it's high paying job, certainly. And I look at one guy, he had, he was a brain surgeon and he had his PhD from one of the Nordic countries. And he was doing admin job. And it made no sense. I was like, how do you waste your talent? You could have made so much difference by being a brain surgeon. And Afghanistan needed, and probably in dire need of those people. And we, we probably had maybe five, six of those highly qualified, well-trained, uh, you know, professionals in that field. But somehow he's working a, in an administrative bureaucracy, has nothing to do with his role, it's just a waste of time. Either there was incompetent or they were incompetent for that specific role. I'm just, that just one example. The second issue, so I guess these two major challenges feed off one another. So the second issue is the grand corruption, uh, which is, you know, the, the involvement of apparition on leadership in, in corruption. And Cigar has documented in so many other sources uh, billions of dollars have been wasted. So since the formation of 2000, what, what the people or the pe leadership at the time considered was like, okay, the rural area is being, uh, you know, uh, is, is pretty much marginalized and no attention has been paid. So they focus on rural development. But in the process, what happened, a lot of the, that development budget or, or money never actually got to the final project. It got wasted on so many different levels. And when it came to the final project, it may be a tiny percentage of what the actual budget. What are your hopes for the future of Afghanistan? I think the long term and short term, short term is I think the humanitarian crisis uh, we see on daily basis, it's beyond uh, describable people are starving and we we hear so many stories people actually i don't know how true that is but i saw one documentary people selling their children so just so they can feed themselves and when i was there when the taliban uh, took over several provinces i actually did see the influx of refugees like internally displaced people into the capital and there was one park in the capital it was overrun by all these internally displaced people, and there was nothing. There was, uh, f there was no food, there was no clothing, there was no shelter. All they had was this park that was surrounded. And if somebody stops by and gives them food, that was the extent of it. So in the short run, I think the humanitarian crisis is much more uh, compelling and much more imminent. In the long term, I think uh, is going to be the 
the form of the garment or the composition of the garment and whatever form they may choose the people of Afghanistan people have to have input in it in a monopolistic uh, a, a, a narrow based government is not going to function so that in the long term people should have their voice we should not uh, I hope that people we don't get to see the repeat of or um, season two of the 1990s Taliban because what we have witnessed the Taliban have become much more emboldened much more powerful much more sophisticated but their ideology has only gotten worse so now you have a worse ideology combined with latest technology latest weapon including night vision and they have air force and MRAP, all the heavy, uh, you know, uh, modern U.S. Uh, technology and uh, weaponry they have uh, in the gear. If you see the, the Taliban, they look just like the Afghan special forces that were trained by the U.S. Uh, and NATO forces. They don't look any different. Because one day I wanted to just see, like, probably five days later, I just went around the presidential palace and I went, I just, from distance, I looked at the main gates and they weren't any different. They looked exactly like what the previous, you know, security forces looked. Only this time, they're equipped with a, with a, the this destructive uh, ideology, not just for Afghanistan, but for the world around. And I don't see Taliban any different than Al-Qaeda. I, I know somehow the, there is tendency in the media to kind of, bifurcate or, or dichotomize the two groups and I think it's all false. The essential ingredients what, what makes Al-Qaeda and Taliban is the same. Maybe Taliban wants to go to Central Asia that may be their you know red line they don't want to cross that and Al-Qaeda doesn't limit itself to one particular geography same with ISIS but their ideology of imposing that horrific uh, thought on the people or version of Islam, no different than Al-Qaeda and ISIS. With those short-term and long-term hopes in mind, how do you think the global community should approach its relationship with Afghanistan moving forward? So in the last four years, I guess, four decades of Afghanistan, at least that's my, has been my personal experience, Afghanistan somehow experimented with three different and often competing uh, systems of governance. With the Soviet invasion, Afghanistan experimented with communism. In the 90s, Afghanistan experimented with Islamic theocracy. In 2001 until 2021, Afghanistan experimented briefly with democracy. And one common ingredient in all those three, or their fate, we saw they failed. What was the main reason? We learned that no matter the form of governance or the system that is there, if it's externally imposed and it doesn't have the input of the people, the consent of the people, it's going to falter, it's gonna fail. And as I said, Afghanistan is the laboratory, a case study. So the future, uh, how the international community engages with the Taliban uh, it's going to determine uh, 
the failure or the success of the regime that is going to be formed. If the, the international community pretty much gives up and, and surrenders to the Taliban, uh, to the whims of the Taliban, and it's not going to be sustainable. Yes, they may terrorize the people for several years. They may oppress women. They may oppress uh, minority ethnic groups. They may oppress uh, religious uh, minority groups. But it's not going to be sustainable. We saw that version, the episode one in 1990s. But if it's broad-based in the truest sense, and it is not elite-imposed, with the 2001 uh, or the post-Taliban regime, what we saw a common thread theme, the Taliban uh, theocracy and the uh, communist regime was, it's, it was one externally imposed, second, it was l the internal elites that had run the system. And if it becomes just monopolized by the Taliban, only the Taliban leaders occupy important government position, which is, happening at the moment, and minority ethnic groups are excluded, religious ethnic uh, minorities are excluded, civil society groups are excluded, women's are excluded, it's not going to succeed. Uh, the international community, the way it, it engages, must, must ensure that women have a voice in the truest sense, not just, you know, token representation that just can, they can bring a few women, they say, hey, we got 25% of the cabinet, or the parliament, in reality, they, they're powerless. The same with ethnic minorities. We saw in the 1990s, the massacre of the Hazaras, the Taliban committed, uh, the genocide with the Shia Muslims, the, 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 the horrendous crimes they committed against them. Uh, the oppression of women, we, we need not to, you know, talk about it, I guess it's so uh, wide, widely reported, so I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you all are aware of that. Uh, a woman could not go out just to buy food without their male guardians. In the 90s, it was somehow, it never occurred to them. A lot of males were killed in the war, so not every woman had a male guardian. So how do you solve that? It somehow they entered to their minds. And the same is gonna be true now. A lot of young women I know their husbands killed, were killed in the war. So who are they going to use as their guardians? So how are they going to feed themselves? If somehow Islam apparently doesn't allow people to work. It's, it's amazing. How come all other Muslim countries somehow allow women to participate in, in political, social, and economic life? But somehow the version of Islam that is imposed on Afghanistan, it doesn't allow them. In Saudi Arabia, you have women working. B, there is a lot of limitation, but at least they can work. In UAE, women are allowed to work. Women are allowed to drive. Women are allowed to vote. Uh, Pakistan, women, there is co-education. And, and Karachi universities, Lahore universities, Islamabad University, even Peshawar University, men and women study together in universities. Somehow, in Afghanistan, even girls, as they open schools in certain areas, the girls aren't allowed back in schools. Ignore the university part, where you have adults, you know, somehow, God forbid, adult male and female come together and somehow it's going to be the atrocity of the century. 
So this 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 horrendous ideology that Taliban embrace is no different than Al Qaeda. And so how international international community engages with the Taliban and the the form of regime that is going to be uh, you know that emerges as a result will certainly uh, dictate uh, whether or not it's going to be sustainable. And these features that I briefly touched on are going to be the essential ingredients uh, in impacting the sustainability of that uh, regime type. Dr. Nurstani, you've specifically done a lot of research on how corruption can impact nations that are coming out of, of conflict. Um, I wonder if you could share what you think might be done to minimize or mitigate corruption as countries rebuild after conflict. Yeah, corruption, I don't know. It's At least I would uh, limit myself to the uh, context of Afghanistan. Uh, so with the uh, influx of the money, obviously, that's going to be so you look at the resources. Uh, if there's no resource, there's not going to be corruption. If there's no power, there's not going to be corruption. But you do need resources to rebuild after, uh, you know, decades of destruction, both the you know institution as well as the uh, physical infrastructure of a war-torn country. So any foreign aid that flows into Afghanistan, I guess we will talk now that the democratic regime has fallen and uh, Islamic theocracy has, or a version of it has taken over Afghanistan. And there are talks that uh, there are gonna be some international aid going to Afghanistan. Uh, and we have seen some uh, glimpse of a scenario of what would that would look like if the international money were to flow into Afghanistan. Uh, first thing first, the Taliban are gonna use that as a victory propaganda. They say, okay, now we have money. And uh, instead of actually distributing among the people that actually need the most or the projects that are, the money is intended to be spent on, they're gonna use amongst themselves. That's for sure. So if you, uh, I don't know if you follow the news, what happened soon after the formation of the Taliban, they, there was some money uh, they had somehow acquired from the previous government. Uh, it was in Central Bank, or they, they were, there were reports that there were physical cash they found in the presidential palace. So one of the things they did actually, so they called up all their fighters and the, the, their fighters that had died, their relatives, and they distributed the money amongst themselves. And this is uh, during a time when we see thousands of internally displaced people are pretty much uh, flocked into the capital. And you don't have to walk around for miles and miles. You just walk out and you see, and it's really hard to control your own emotion when you see that scenario. You see young girls, young boys, older women, older men, people amputated legs with no limb. And they pretty much, all they have left at their disposal is begging. And actually, you can't actually eat or enjoy food when you see that scenario. And while the famine is going in the country, going on in the country, all they focus, their priority is to pretty much re-energize their base, distributed whatever uh, little amount of money they have amongst themselves. That's exactly what's going to happen. They're never going to distribute among the people they need. So the international community, whatever aid money goes to, 
they have to come up with certain some sort of mechanism to make sure that a big chunk of that money goes to the targeted uh, program or targeted audience. So the and they shouldn't take it, you know, the Taliban, their words, they should have uh, an oversight mechanism of some sort. Yes, they may, might report, okay, we spent about 80% of the aid money on the intended, you know, audience or participant, and our overhead cost was minimized to 20% or 10%, whatever. We, we can never take them at their words. What we have learned over the 20 years, Taliban are some of the dece most deceitful elements. They're the most distrusting, the most dishonest people. So with the, and we saw that already and over, with the U.S. Uh, entering into some agreement with them in the 2019-2020, they had agreement to not attack civilians, yet they started campaign of terror targeting individuals, not in the military or the security sector, and civilian sector, as long as you work for the government or somehow related to government, your brother somehow worked for the government, you were targeted. So we can never trust the Taliban. They're some of the most deceitful people. And that's why you have to have some sort of mechanism that actually has some uh, ways to verify those accounts, those reports. Uh, it's. I, I don't think we can resolve the, the uh, problem of corruption in one setting, but mm -hmm. those are, I think, some of the starting points that I'm sure the international community knows much better than a lot of us. They have been doing, with, you know, dealing with uh, foreign aid for, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 years. They have a body of knowledge and experience. They can resort to that. But somehow it seems and there's no political will, but they don't see it uh, convenient to whatever objectives they're trying. I mean, Afghanistan could have been a success uh, scenario, of, you know, nation building case or U.S. Uh, involvement. But somehow because of those failures of the international community, as well as uh, U.S. Uh, government, to not implement some, some sort of oversight on the foreign aid they uh, provided. It eventually led to the downfall of the regime because uh, most of that aid was lost to corruption, waste, fraud. And I'm not saying they're, they don't know. They know much better than any of us uh, in this room. Uh, I think what's lacking is the political will to actually carry on or implement their knowledge or the, the lessons they have learned from experiences. I just see there's lack of political will to fight corruption. And if anybody wants to know more about, I think cigar reports are a great resource. And yeah, the US leadership did see a lot of those corruption instances in a lot of the people that were, you know, in the front line uh, be the U.S. Uh, military uh, personnel or U.S. Uh, civilian sector personnel, they did report somehow. It just got ignored because apparently there was a much more uh, compelling objective that needed to be prioritized over this 
minor uh, inconvenience of, of corruption that was considered at the time a, an, an inconvenience or a minor issue. But it, it, it led to a downfall of the regime. It was not minor. And those people who engaged uh, or were aware of those situations certainly are going to agree with us that it was not a minor inconvenience. It was some of the, amongst the major issue uh, Afghanistan faced. Dr. Nuristani, thank you for talking with us today and sharing your experiences and your scholarship. We ask this question of all of our guests, what would you do to strengthen democracy? Thank you for your question. I, I think, so I'll repeat some of the points so democracy, an essential element of a democracy is the will of the people. And what uh, gives legitimacy to any regime is that public's input or consent to that form of government. And as I said earlier, it, we, must, we have to ensure that democracy is, uh, an, it, 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 it's formed organically and it's not imposed externally or it's not imposed by uh, domestic elites. Uh, so we saw uh, or in the past 20 years, a huge disconnect between the urban population or the urban elite versus the 90% of the rural uh, commoners as they considered those people. But I don't know, somehow I, I read this interview and they said, well, Yes, you, when you ignore the rural communities, they tend to have the guns. And those guns tend to somehow bring down, down the regime. And Afghanistan experience has been like that since 1747. You ignore the, the bulk of your population. Elites somehow, they somehow tend to forget their roots. Mm. They were part of that community, part of that society once somehow they occupied important positions or somehow they uh, were fortunate to pursue uh, advanced education degrees in the West or in their own country. Somehow they disconnect themselves from the very community they uh, belong to or they, they rose from. And that's a major mistake from, uh, I think, this uh, elite-centered uh, form of regime or bureaucracy. So any, any form of democracy that is going to become sustainable, it must have the, the, the consent of a bulk of the population. Without the bulk of your population, it's, it's going to be unsustainable, no, no matter the form of the regime. It could be theocracy. If 90% of the population agrees with you, I think it's going to be sustainable to some degree. If it's democracy and somehow you tend to ignore the will of the 80% of your population or 60% of your population, no matter all the benefits of democracy, it's gonna, it's gonna collapse. And Afghanistan is a perfect case we saw. You just had to read a few articles. You don't have to deep dive and you know, do uh, political uh, analyses or you know, opinions of the politicians or scholars. Just look at over 20 years. Seven, 1979, the same thing happened with the communism. The bulk of the uh, rural population, they despised. There were external, you know, elements. We should never ignore those too. But those external 
elements weren't going to have impact as long as you had kept your population happy or at least you had their consent and their blessing. The foreign elements are going to penetrate only when there is internal, you know, fracture. Mm -hmm. So as long as that fracture doesn't exist, I think foreign uh, interference are going to be less effective. And the same thing somehow happened with the uh, 1995 Islamic theocracy that Taliban. I mean, eventually, they weren't responding to the will of the people. And in the beginning, they, they were seen as liberators because at least they somehow got rid of the, you know, civil war and uh, in, in the different factions that were, they were fighting against uh, one another. They got rid of them. The people thought, okay, these are going to be the uniting force. Mm -hmm. But somehow they started massacre of ethnic uh, minorities. They somehow uh, marginalized uh, the Shia community and other uh, minority groups. That's when people saw they weren't actually for the people of Afghanistan. So any, any system, especially, and I'm hoping it's going to be some form of democracy in, in the truest sense, it has to have the input of the people, the will of the people, elite-centered, uh, an accord signed somehow in Doha is not going to do that. With, with 1979, somehow we had some agreement with the Soviet USSR. It didn't work. With the, you know, post-Russian withdrawal regime that was to that was supposed to form that accord was signed in Peshawar it didn't work the Taliban emerged from an outside force supported by an outside force it didn't work the post-Taliban regime accord that was signed in Bonn Germany somehow it, sh it was short-lived probably the brilliant phase of Afghanistan and I, I think it was uh, despite it's, it's, it's so many shortcomings, the best period, at least I remember, and so many young people would, uh, would attest to that, especially uh, young women. The, the, the current uh, Taliban theocracy, it's signed in Doha. It's not gonna be sustainable. It has to come from within. Any externally imposed agreement is not going to work. I guess that's the lesson we should take from the 40, 40 something years of uh, history in Afghanistan, of Afghanistan. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does this indication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.